Kia ora, I'm Emil Donovan, and today on the detail, pokey machines, or class 4 gambling, are the most common and most lucrative method of gambling in New Zealand, taking in nearly a billion dollars each year. That's nearly twice what Lotto brings in. And a good whack of that money gets spread around the community. You know, money sports clubs and community organisations have come to rely on. But that funding comes at a cost. The median income in Poirier is not much more than $30,000 a year. $13 million is being taken out of it. You know, and, and it's no coincidence that 10 out of the 12 places you can play poking machines in Poirier are in the poorest places. It is predatory. It's, it's like a tax. You know, it's, it's all bad. 22 of the 67 local councils around the country have taken action against these machines and the capital is considering joining them. A new proposal from Wellington City Council would see a sinking lid policy. That would mean when an existing pokey venue closes down, the council won't allow a new one to open. It would also mean venues won't be able to increase the number of pokies they have, nor will an operation be allowed to move from one part of the city to another. But when this funding is the lifeblood of organisations which are also likely to feel the COVID-19 pinch, could drastic reform leave them high, dry and broke? Professor Peter Adams is Deputy Head of Auckland School of Population Health and has written several books on pokies and community groups' reliance on funding from gambling. I guess... Gambling has been around in all sorts of forms, but it's usually at a low-intensity, low-salience types of gambling, which I'd liken to a cottage industry. Um, So what's new in the last 30, 40 years is the industrialisation of gambling, which is the key. The key change that we're dealing with is is gambling on on an industrial scale. They've been a thing all of my life, but when did pokies really... When were they introduced in in New Zealand? Well, I didn't grow up with them. Um, The um, pokies were developed in mechanical form, and they were were in Australian league clubs, particularly New South Wales, um, quite some time ago. But um, the old reel-spinning pokey machines were uh, turned into electronic gambling machines before they came to New Zealand. So they, they, in the early 90s, there were illegal ones entering the country and pretty quickly they became legal and spread very, very rapidly. Pokies, or uh, slot machines, were first legalised back in 1988 and they caught on pretty fast. The expansion during the 90s was really rapid and the number of machines went up to uh, 20,000 machines very quickly. There were there were 2,000 venues and mostly licensed premises where people bet. Um, so the spread was very, very rapid. But it, uh, since uh, uh, around the early 2000s and when the Act came in in 2003... That's the Gambling Act, which formalised some of the rules around pokies which apply today. Gambling has been fairly steady. It's been consolidated, and I, I think that's the intent, is to consolidate the level in which, which gambling is occurring. So it went from, from very low levels to a billion on machines being spent. The change was very rapid during the 90s. I was, I was chairing the Problem Gambling Foundation at the time and we were horrified with, with what, we were, what we were beginning to deal with. What was it about pokies? Why did it... Did poke, presumably you put it down to pokies, that massive increase. Did other things happen at the time as well? Or? Casinos also started in that period, mm. um, so the, in the mid-90s. Uh, there were six casinos licensed, and they uh, most of their money is from pokies, at any rate. So it's pokey, pokey gambling, which which drives them as well. So I think pretty much pokies were the driver for 
the rapid expansion and, and gambling that occurred. I mean, I wrote a book about this that compared it to, to forestry or to mining where you have exploiting financial systems happening, moving from a small scale, like just cutting occasional trees down, to mass felling. And so when you've got more pokey venues than you have dairies in, the local, in a community, you get high engagement. And I think that's key in... I, I work in a school of public health, so we the key thing in public health is that consumption and harm are, are interlinked. So the more consumption you get, the more harm on a product like this you get over time. Why are pokies allowed to be in bars? Well, that's the way it happened. It's They needed to be in venues that where there was some monitoring of what was going on. It's very unfortunate that they're in bars because that's it links in with risk-taking, it, drink, it links in with intoxication, and, of course, taking risks with money and being intoxicated is probably not a good combination. Um, it's happened that way. Uh, of course, we do have places that aren't licensed. The, the TAB's got pokies in them now, um, so that's a venue without without it. But it's, I think it was quite unfortunate because it linked male risk-taking to gambling. It kind of linked the two things into a venue where uh, excess was probably highly possible. Now, it would be easy to go down the whole gambling bear, this is exploitation route here, but really this issue is a lot more nuanced than that. The vast majority of people who gamble do so without harming anyone. High and medium risk problem gamblers only make up about 2% of the population, but there is still tens of thousands of people, and lots of them are especially prone to slot machines. Data from the Problem Gambling Foundation shows that of those who seek professional assistance, around half are due to Class 4 gambling. But the numbers around poker machines are actually really interesting. Over the past five years, the number of venues which host poker machines have dropped from nearly 1,300 to fewer than 1,100. The number of machines themselves has dropped from 16,500 to fewer than 15,000. But the expenditure on pokies, counterintuitively, has actually risen over that time from $828 million in 2015 to $939 million in 2019. So what happens to that money? The way it's been set up, initially it was set up, a th- we talked about a third, a third, a third. A third of the money went to the providers, so the person who runs the bar or, or uh, the venue and the rental of the machines. The next third goes to government, so that's the revenue for government. And the final third goes to community groups, so there's an obligation for that money to be distributed to community groups. In um, a change in the law, I think it was two years ago, that that the proportion was shifted to 42 or 41% going to community groups, which I think is a step in the wrong direction, but it's, 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 it's what happened. So... If you lose a hundred bucks on a machine, forty percent of of what you've lost would go to is dispersed to the community, and the and the and the rest goes to the the provider and the government. All pub and bar pokey machines in New Zealand are run by corporate societies, more often known as pokey trusts. These are groups like the Lion Foundation, um, pub charity or Southern Trust. As of July 2019, there were 34 societies in the country. They're non-profits and they're tasked with collecting and distributing these funds to community organisations. And that, let me tell you, 
is a chunk of change. More than $300 million distributed among more than 12,000 groups of all shapes and sizes. Here's the Southern Trust Chief Executive Karen Shea explaining some of the criteria they consider when deciding who gets funding. Essentially, we have to make sure that they um, are not a commercial type of operation. We need to understand what, what they're doing within their communities and whether there is actually going to be some sort of community benefit from us funding uh, a particular organisation for something. That would be the main criteria. Yes, schools, sports clubs, charities, church groups. Just going through the Lion Foundation's list of recipients in 2019, it's long and it's varied. And this is what causes a lot of consternation, whether it's morally conscionable that community groups which are a public good should rely so heavily on funds derived from gambling. Here's the chief executive of the Problem Gambling Foundation, Paula Snowden. All of these poker machines are in hospitality venues. Hospitality can run without poker machines. If the government decided to support the current community groups for six months while we take stock of how to fund them and who should be funded, it's about $60 million, which is a drop in the bucket. Stop this dependence on problem gamblers and poor people funding national interests, which is what's happening now. If we need a flying doctor trust, we should fund it. If we need these services for mental health addictions in the community, we should fund them. Public good. There are several parts to this which are problematic. Um, firstly, you're establishing a for community groups such as arts, sports organisations, charities, health organisations, the kindy and schools, all those many places that this money goes to. You're establishing a long-term relationship with a source that is partially to do with fun and partially to do with harm. So if we look at the harm side, even though there are fewer people with problem gambling issues, they spend a hell of a lot more. So a lot of that money is coming from people who have an addictive relationship to their gambling. And, of course, with that goes all the harm in terms of family, in terms of mental health, in terms of effects on children, in terms of income and loss of marriage, all, all those many things that go with addiction. But problem gambling isn't the only form of gambling harm that's going on. And as I said before, the low-income people who are spending who regularly on, on pokies, it can tip them over the edge in terms of mortgage, in terms of their ability to sustain the economic base for their, their family. So that has knock-on effects at the time, but also in generations to come in terms of people's opportunities and development potential. So when we're talking about gambling harm, we're talking about a lot of things. And, and I would argue that probably around half the money is coming f from people who are experiencing harm. So the trouble for an organisation like a, like a health group or a charity is they're trying to do good in society by engaging in a, a, a source, at least half a source, <laughs> which is doing really extensive harm within that community. So that's one part of it, is that it's establishing a relationship with a... a, 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 a it's trying to do good through one's society... Um, and at the same time um, ex uh, drawing on a source that's doing harm within, probably within the same community. Presumably the philosophy or the, the idea behind it is people are going to gamble and gambling models mean that people are going to lose money. If people are going to lose money, let's 
do all that we can reasonably to ensure that at least a good proportion of that money is going back into the community somehow or another. Okay. Okay. That would be fine if if we were working to reduce the harm associated with that gambling. But I challenge anyone to go into a pokey room in a bar and say that this is not a harmful environment. You have nine or 18 machines crammed into one small space. So this isn't a social space. This is in a bar. So so people go into this space. It's anonymous. It's solitary. People are playing in solitary forms because you can't socialise. There's no tables. There's nothing. It's pure a pure consumption environment where, with minimal social interaction. It's a space, the pokey, bar, the pokey room is designed as a place of pure consumption of, for one solitary purpose, and, and I would argue that that is primarily for people who are invi- engaging with heavy, heavy forms of gambling, and, and that's what they're solely designed for. Now, we should change that. We should make it, we should change. But we can't change those environments because there are so many people now reliant on the source from that, from that from that source. As I said before, people who are problem gamblers are going to spend the most. So if we if we make them uh, unfavourable for problem gamblers, we're going to lower the income and all the various groups, including government, are going to be punished. Uh, they're going to have less income uh, if, we, if we change it. So we're caught in this conundrum where I think we'd all recognise that the nature of pokey gambling needs to change, but we can't change. It hasn't changed for, for 20 years because of the reliance on these um, pokey rooms to keep yielding the sorts of funds that sports clubs and uh, charities and schools uh, continue to need and the government needing also to draw on those those profits as well. They're forming a, a indirect but material relationship with people who are gambling in, in ways that are doing harm. And that relationship will go on and my children and my children's children will inherit that relationship. Um, I don't think it's good in the long term. The problem is, as we've alluded to before, finding a substitute. Because these community groups, they're important. You know, they do important work. And Pokey's funding is easily by far the biggest and most accessible source of funding for community groups and initiatives really of all sorts like it's easy to say take all the pokies away let's find some other way of funding these groups but 300 million bucks that that's a huge amount of money removing that overnight would be catastrophic for all sorts of groups and not to mention the 300 million extra the government takes in from tax like what would fill that void government funding yeah maybe but in addition to magicking $300 million out of nowhere at a belt-tightening time in history, you'd also need new allocation systems. The public sector's unlikely to be able to splash the cash anywhere near as liberally or quickly as the Pokies Trust model. It's complicated, and it gets more complicated. Because of the nature of this funding, not all groups are comfortable applying for it. Here, for example, is the panel host, Mike Rehu, talking to Golnaz Basam Tabar from the Authority PR firm. Some groups, however, such as Muslim associations, refuse to apply for any pokey money. That's haram for them, a big limitation. So, Golnaz, can you explain a bit about this, how gambling is viewed in Islam? It's quite simple. You can't, if something is forbidden in Islam, then its byproducts are also forbidden. So you can't pursue an act that's forbidden, like gambling, um, for a 
a greater purpose, for example, building a mosque or a school or whatever. But um, at the risk of probably offending a whole heap of people, I'm going to say that just demonstrate the hypocrisy of some religious institutions when they take funds generated by such a destructive act, something they openly preach about. You're not allowed to do this in our religion, but we're going to take its byproduct and uh, use it ourselves. That's ridiculous to me. A researcher was doing some work in Auckland looking at interviewing people who applied and got money from Pokey's trusts, and they talked of perceiving that their organisation couldn't survive without that money. At the same time, they also talked about uncertainty about getting it. Even though it's a lot of it, you don't always get it from year for year, so that creates a high level of anxiety. And they also talked about not being comfortable with the source, you know, that it wasn't consistent with the philosophy and purpose of their organ, their their club or their group or their school. And they also talked about not wanting the trusts to know that they're uncomfortable receiving that money. So it's an interesting little web going on there. And and I, I, I know some organisations have stood out and, and said that they won't take um, pokey funding, but that's been enormously difficult uh, move for, for many organisations, particularly charities in our community, to, to make a stand on that and to get everyone on a board to agree that this is what we should do because the fear of missing out on, on this huge source has huge leverage in our communities. You described it before as well, the idea of poking money um, going to community groups as being something like a regressive tax. Can you just elaborate a bit on that? What do you mean by that? I, regret, I mean, a progressive tax is a tax which seeks to benefit those who are less advantaged. A regressive tax does the opposite. It's, it's where <laughs> Robin Hood goes up, upside down, where the money is benefiting the, the, the more wealthy in society. Given that um, low-income and marginal people are more likely to be playing on machines, that they're, they're a big chunk of their income and they probably can't afford it is going into that, into that space. Nearly half of the venues which host pokey machines in New Zealand are in medium-high or very high deprivation areas, the poorest areas with the most vulnerable people. Just 79 venues, 7%, are in very low deprivation areas. So what's to be done? There's been some attempts to, to, to change. Uh, Norway's a really interesting example where they closed all their pokies down uh, for two years. The community groups that received money from them, they got awarded money from government just as a, to wean them off. Um, we did the same with tobacco sponsorship with Smoke Free. There was a, a mechanism used to help community groups transition. And then Norway reintroduced pokies, but they were very safely built. They created quite different environments. There were all the protections for players, the best ones we know about at the moment. So they're an interesting example of having made a strong change. They do have a vast sovereign wealth fund to draw in Norway. Absolutely. <laughs> I know. I was mindful. When I was there, I was mindful of their services are amazing. Yes. yes. In some examples, Western Australia chose not to uh, introduce pokies. They've got casino, but they haven't, they've chosen not to introduce pokies. Their sports clubs, their, their arts groups, they're all, they're all flourishing. They're, you know, there isn't, because it's never happened, they've just carried on as we did before 1990. The community organisations flourished. There was a strong uh, volunteer 
element through through society. I I, I, I think it's you know I think our perceived reliance on that is is perceived. It's it's, it's a construction which we we need to question. I think when pokies were first introduced, New Zealand had come out of a long history of gambling being very benign. It was non-continuous, so you gambled maybe once a week on uh, on horses rather than, you know, every second, which is what we've shifted to. So as a country, we're very naive. When it was first introduced, the Department of Internal Affairs was actually promoting pokey gambling as a you know, as a as a positive thing. I remember, I mean, I was quite involved at that time. There was a strong promotion. It was going to introduce jobs. It was going to introduce, uh, t- improve tourism, et cetera, et cetera. And we also had trusted government for so long to manage this, the harm from, from gambling. You know, been, it was highly regulated. But what we weren't prepared for, and if you go back, the poker machine was a kind of neoliberal dream. It, it was... Uh, something that was going to reduce size of government. It was um, part of um, individual choice and responsibility. It was so. If you remember the mid nineties, it was the rise of neoliberal approaches, and gambling machines fell into the middle of that, and they, they expanded without constraints. Primarily, you know, the, as I said before, there was a tenfold increase in the number of machines and the expenditure on gambling. It just rose without any constraints, and I think the act was a recognition that things had got out of control. So, I, th- I think part of why that happened was naivety about the potential for harm. Most people would sort of intellectualising this would see the irony of community groups looking to do good in society, relying at least partly on gambling, which broadly you could say contributes to societal harm in order to do what they do in the community. And on an intellectual level, I feel like most people can probably appreciate that. But on a realistic level, this is the way that it is. And it's $300 million a year, and it's 12,000 organisations. And how do you fill that gap, you know? Yes, if we were, if we wanted to change it, what could what could well, happen? Well, I mean, do do you think that we should change it? Oh, absolutely. I I don't think we've got a chance of reducing gambling harm in New Zealand if we don't accept um, uh, the prospect of receiving less money from gambling machines. I mean, I think I think we could reach a point where they where the the harm from them is is as as little as possible, and then I'd be quite comfortable accepting money from that source. But as they are as they stand now. And the environments they're in, the nature of the, how the machine is developed without any constraints from government in terms of their harm, there's little chance of things changing. That's it for today. I'm Emil Donovan. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so other people can find us too. Today's episode was engineered by Adrian Holley and produced by Alexia Russell, and thanks to Peter Adams. Matewa.